You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love the Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from the Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that the Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, FirstUp, and your LMS, all with enterprise-grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash secondcity, and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.venly.co slash Second City to get access to the First Takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. My guest today on the podcast is Lydie Klotz, who is the Copenhaver Associate Professor at the University of Virginia, where he is appointed in the schools of engineering, architecture, and business. Yeah, those three. Um, he founded and directs the university's Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative, and his latest book is called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the essay end. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Lydie Klotz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be here. Uh, you begin your book with the story of visiting the Embarcadero uh, waterfront in San Francisco, a site my family visited uh, when my kids were younger. Um, can you tell us why that particular place is relevant to the thesis in your book? Right. Yeah, I um, basically because it's this uh, this beautiful spot that got created as a result of a massive subtraction. So when we, we visited the Embarcadero, this was, my wife does our travel planning and this was number one on our list. Um, and we went there, we did the idyllic kind of walk along the waterfront. The, there was a guy making balloon animals. He made one for our son. We saw the Harbor seals. Um, there's a 
uh, amusement park there. Um, we had dinner at a sourdough bread place. I mean, we did, mm-hmm. that was the place to be. It's one of the most visited places in the world. And I remember thinking when I was there, I was like, this can't be the same place, can it? Because I'd, I'd always been in, interested in subtraction. And one of my students, uh, a PhD student, now a professor at Virginia Tech, Trip Shealy, had had always used this example of subtracting um, a freeway in San Francisco and how that was a, a, a cool example of civil engineering design. And then sure enough, when I, I went back, looked at the computer, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is the exact same place. I can't believe it. And, you know, so for a long time, basically from the post Eisenhower, you know, building a lot of highways until uh, the 1990, there was a double decker concrete freeway in this spot, um, in this like incredibly valuable land. And it took a really long time and was really hard for it to be subtracted. Um, so the, uh, yeah, the, um, you know, planners kind of recognized it. They started to do the analysis and they're like, mm-hmm. geez, this is a pretty high value piece of land. And they, they studied it. They studied it a lot. They said, oh, you know, how is this going to affect traffic? How much would it help property values? How much would it help kind of quality of life in the city? And, you know, the planning analysis was like, yeah, this is, we should do this. Uh, they, they initially put it to a vote among people in San Francisco and it, you know, just got destroyed. It was two to one against removing this double-decker highway that's, Mm -hmm. you know, blocking the best views. And a little bit of that is like, we like things the way they are. People were worried, rightfully so, that the traffic might get worse. In other places of the city, there's a Chinatown district that was kind of served by that, that um, they thought they might lose some some customers as a result. Uh, And it wasn't until... It just became off the table because the public sentiment was so much against it. Um, and it wasn't until the the earthquake, and I remember watching this as a, a 12 or 13-year-old, I guess, uh, or 11, um, who who liked baseball in the Bay Area mm-hmm. World Series, San Francisco versus Oakland, and, yeah. uh, and that, that earthquake. And um, billions of dollars worth of damage. There were, I think, 63 deaths. And a lot of those deaths occurred in uh, in Oakland, which uh, when a double-decker <laughs> concrete freeway, the same that, you know, basically the same design as the one that was on the Embarcadero collapsed. And so this, this showed people the dangers of having a double-decker highway in a yeah in an earthquake zone, but it also showed people what life would be like without the highway because that the Embarcadero itself was damaged enough so that people couldn't use it anymore. And, you know, they realized that, okay, life is going on in the city. People are finding ways to get around the city. And so the planning commission brought it back up again. And this time they didn't have to put it to a public vote for whatever reason. And Mm. it passed through the planning commission six to five. um, And the, and then the mayor and the, the whole the planning commission as a result in the, the next election got swept out of office in part yeah. because they removed the freeway. So people were still really mad about like getting rid of this thing that already existed. And of course, now, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, it's it's just so obvious that that was the right thing to do. And all the measures, even traffic didn't even get worse um, and <laughs> and created this beautiful space. But it was uh it was subtraction that brought it about. And so it's this, this large scale example of the, the power of removing things. Um, and it also is a nice illustration of a lot of the reasons why we don't remove things. I mean, one, we don't think of it, but then even after you do think of this as a possibility, there's, there are a lot of reasons why it's, it's hard to take things away. 
Yeah. And this, and this, this is what so intrigued me about the book is recognizing in myself uh, that I tend to go to additive solutions. I mean, the, the whole idea around yes and is to work from a place of abundance, which is we're not saying that that's not good and that more hasn't you know proven to be good at different times. However, there are other ways to see the universe. And when I flash forward to think about how we do things at Second City, I'm like, oh, no, like we start with yes and. But then in the crafting of comedy, we go into incredible edits. I mean, you know, brevity is the soul of wit. We're, we're always looking right. at like how we can make it uh, so, so that we have that gene as well. But I think in my day to day, I'm not I, I'm I'm thinking less about removing the friction that might be there um, and, and more about adding um, your your title is and your background is sort of unique. Can you talk about I mean, I think it, it speaks to why you think in this way. Right. I, um, yeah. So by I'm sitting here in an engineering department and I have a joint appointment in architecture and, um, but most of my research I think would be classified as behavioral science. Um, thanks to a lot of good behavioral science collaborators. Um, and I came to this with, from an interest in, you know, environmental and social sustainability. So these, these resource limits that, that we're, we're facing in the world. And um, so, you know, climate change is one, but also other planetary boundaries that we're coming up against. And so the more I studied, okay, how can we address these with the built environment um, with the, the infrastructure we have, the buildings we have um, it, there are a lot of, technological solutions out there, right? And the, and the issue is not necessarily inventing a better solar panel, although that's a good thing to do, or inventing, you know, new highway technologies. It's also in how we design this built environment. How, you know, do we actually need a highway here? Can we, um, can we get people around the city just as effectively with less raw materials? And so I saw like more and more of those examples popping up and I'm like, geez, this is not just a, an engineering thing. This is much more about how we all think about the world around us. And it's not just how engineers think either, right? Because that San Francisco example, the planners had figured it out, but the, or not figured it out. The planners had their opinion, but the people who were, you know, the decision makers in this case didn't want to do it. Um, so we all kind of shaped this built environment around us. And that's, that's how I came to the behavioral sciences. Like, okay, this is, this is some really important thing here. And I started, you know, I, this was, um, I would read predictably irrational by Dan Ariely and, you know, yeah. nudge by, um, Thaler and Sunstein. And this was kind of right at the beginning of my first tenure track faculty position where you have your, you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, what do I actually want to do that can make a big difference? And that's when I said, okay, I got to go like all in on this and try to figure out how to bridge these two disciplines. So that's, um, yeah, bridge, no, no pun intended, no pun intended. but, um, yeah, that's how uh, I got so here. So uh, there's some terms I want to talk about because they they were new to me and, mm -hmm. and but but um, related uh, uh, in in ideas that we mess around with here. Talk to us about set schema and distance schema. Yeah, the way that I came to it was watching my son learn math, um, and if you think about uh, a set schema, is basically the teacher telling them, "Hey, you've got seven apples," and you take away three apples, right? So the, the schema is based on these physical objects and mm -hmm. it helps the kids visualize this, right? And so it's like, yep. here's the seven apples minus three, you get four. Uh, the, and that's great. It works really well, except for when you get to negative numbers, right? Because if you say to 
to my son, Ezra, uh, he, he gets this now probably. Well, if you said to him now, even I think, Hey, you've got seven apples and you take eight apples away. The answer isn't negative one apples. The answer is that's a dumb question, dad. Like what do you think that right, makes right. zero sense? Uh, it's, it's nonsense to go into negative numbers. And for a long time, uh, even like, um, you know, math, math, mathematicians didn't go into negative numbers. They're just like, this doesn't make sense. We don't need to have these. Uh, and then, um, but the distance schema is basically picturing a mental number line in your head. Right. And mm-hmm. so if I'm doing this subtraction that goes into negative numbers, I'm sitting there visualizing like, okay, seven, seven minus eight, I'm, I've, I'm picturing this number line. I mean, I just do that automatically now, but the way you do it is you have a number line in your head. You go from seven minus eight. It's like, okay, seven gets you to zero. And then one more gets you up to eight. And that would be negative one. So you're picturing this, mm-hmm. this mental number line in your head. And that's a, that's a distance schema versus a set schema. The, uh, the, re- the reason I, I brought that up too is because um, many sort of experts in comedy uh, talk about the math of it. Um, and so, you know, there's this rule of three. I don't know if you ever heard that term, which I've is heard it uh, in which, other contexts. Yeah. 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 So the, uh, the, there's the rule of three, which is, is if you, if you say something sort of uh, in, in threes, you're going to get the maximum laugh. If you do four or five, it won't work six fine. Uh, but it always works in, in, inside the threes. And I don't know why uh, a second city ensemble, the magic number is six which is also a number that people have uh, used to be the, the most effective teams. Okay. Um, and then this, this idea of the, the taking away that, that, you know, are, are it, it's, it seems alien to us, which I think is one of the reasons we veer away from subtraction, but you talk about the fact that even before we learn math, we actually perceive quantity like, like young, young people get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, and let me do the like one important thing related to subtraction and overlooking subtraction with the set and distance schema is if you're using that set schema, you know, for apples, it's appropriate. Seven minus eight is nonsense. But for, um, you know, if I'm using the set schema when I'm editing a piece of writing that I did and I say, okay, you know, this is a 5,000 word piece of writing and I, you know, set use the set schema as I can't go below 5,000 words. I'm, I'm setting it at the wrong spot. Right. And, and yeah. it's not nonsense to actually cut it beyond this unbreachable baseline. And, you know, it's also, um, I think about this with my friend who's trying to play great par in golf and he's the subject of the yes and story. So I'll make him sound good here too, but the, he, um, <laughs> he, he, uh, you know, so he's getting close to breaking par, but he still sees it as this kind of like, par is the thing he's striving for. And I've been telling him, it's like, you've got to use a, you've got to use the distance schema here, right? It's, it's just as likely for you to get like three under par. Um, and, yeah. and you can think about when you're, when you're playing, it's okay to get four birdies before you get two bogeys. Um, so anyway, uh, that the set and distance schema can keep us from subtraction. The set schema can keep us from subtraction when we set these artificial baselines. And I think we do that, you know, tying back to the Embarcadero story. I mean, that's kind of like you, you look at the city you live in as like, okay, this is the way things are. And to, to make it better, you know, we can subtract some, but we can't subtract beyond a certain point. And so if we set that baseline in the wrong spot and use the set schema, we can miss out on, um, miss out on some opportunities. And then the, 
now I'll go to your question about the, um, <laughs> the, this is great. You're asking about this, by the way, because I've been on all these wonky academic podcasts and no one's asked about the, the numbers. And now I get to do the, the fun second city podcast and you're asking about the math. Um, but the, um, you know, so again, how kids learn, um, adding and subtracting and Elizabeth Spelke at Harvard's done a lot of research in this area, um, and, and other people, but basically what happens when you're, what she found is that kids can intuit quantity, right? Yeah. So if, if you tell Ezra before he knows how to do math, you know, what's 66 plus 22, I mean, he's not, he might not get 88, but he knows it's like around that. Um, you know, yeah, if yeah. you give him a range of options, he, he knows it's around that. And so kids can be pretty, pretty precise and, and they're just, you know, intuiting this, this quantity with the addition, um, the, the thing that's interesting as it relates to subtraction is they're worse at it, worse at doing this when it comes to subtracting. And the reason is because if, you know, so use those same, um, so 66 plus 22 is 88. So now imagine doing 88 minus 22. Um, and yeah, I'm just making sure that I'm doing it right. That would be embarrassing, <laughs> but I think I've got it right. 88 minus 22 uh, gets you down to 66. So the kids are estimating these numbers, right? And so in the first case, they're having to estimate the 66 and the 22 and what the magnitude of those are. When the second case, they're having to estimate 88 and 22. And the, the farther out they go, the less precise they get in their estimation. So mm -hmm. the 88 is going to be less precise than the 66, the 22s are going to be the same. And then when they subtract there, there's less precision there. So it's just like this, this fundamental way, you know, and I get math is only one of the ways that we, uh, we consider adding and subtracting, but what you're doing here in the math is thinking about concepts and how they, uh, how they grow and how they, how they shrink in this fundamental way that we think about subtraction, we're, we're worse at intuiting less than we are at intuiting more, or at least kids are. And then now that we have math, we can be pretty precise with it. But um, yeah. I was interviewing an author uh, who was, uh, my set schema completely changed on Twitter because uh, this author pointed out that the median number of followers that individuals have on Twitter is 61. Oh, really? Yes. That just, thank you for that. I feel good now. <laughs> exactly. So like for yeah. those of us, you know, who do not have blue check, check marks, but you know, I've got a, a few thousand followers. It's like, that is significantly above. Of course, it's not anywhere near the hundreds of thousands that are like uh, our, our Tony uh, academic friends like Angela Duckworth and Adam Grant have, <laughs> right. um, but still, you know, we, and, and that, and that's a good example right there of like now my whole relationship to this, um, uh, uh, seen on Twitter has changed that with that knowledge. Um, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's totally that, you know, basically the baseline got set there at 61. And uh, thanks for that. I feel so great. I'm up, I'm almost up to 2000. Yeah. Oh, see, <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right. Uh, I was kind of blown away with the way you talk about monuments in civilization. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in particular, this archeologist Klaus Schmidt, um, and the story of Potbelly Hill. Do you want to start with that story and we can talk about this topic? Yeah. And I was blown away by it too. And I'm a, yeah. like, I'm a big structures lover. That's why I did civil engineering. <laughs> and, um, so, um, Klaus Schmidt, uh, discovered this site in, well, he didn't discover the site, but he, um, he went and excavated at Potbelly Hill. It's in Turkey, modern day Turkey. And, you know, 
dates back to the beginnings of civilization. And there's some really big monuments there. I mean, uh, big stones, the size of a giraffe, these individual stones kind of arranged in a semicircle. And so people had always, um, thought that was interesting. Okay. Here's, here are these stones. Uh, and, but, but what's interesting about the Potbelly Hill story is that it kind of shifted on its, it, it shifted on its head, this narrative about, um, the beginnings of civilization. And so, you know, one narrative is like, Oh, of course, you know, the pyramids came about when people settled in this area, started farming, had excess food, had time to devote to other stuff and built some pyramids. Right. Uh, and that that's a sign that civilization was starting because because these big structures popped up, which you wouldn't be able to do in in bands of hunter gatherers. The Potbelly Hill, though, predates kind of any of these other activities. Um, and so the theory, which I in in my reading of the literature, it seems like it's kind of winning out is that building these massive monuments, it was actually what brought civilization together in the first place or what brought this culture together in the first place. Mm. And so the, the theory being, okay, well, your Rome life was people roaming around in bands of hunter gatherers, 25 people following this food supply. Um, and then but then they, if you want to build this monument, think about it. You've got to have other hunter gatherers. And so they wanted to build this monument and that forced them to get together with other groups, figure out ways to collaborate, force them to stay in one place. Right. And so now you've got to think about how do you get a, a stable food supply? So that led to agriculture. And, you know, the, the, I believe the title of uh, kind of Schmidt's seminal paper is first came the temple, then the city. Um, mm. And, or maybe that's a quote, pull quote from the paper. But so the, the idea being that not only was monumental architecture there at the beginning of civilization, it could have been the thing that, that kicked off civilization. And it's up there with things like, you know, religion, <laughs> written language, right. agriculture, these very basic things. And, and so if you're looking at reasons why, oh, is it um, you kind of in our cultural nature, at least to create big structures and to have double-decker highways blocking the waterfront, um, there is a, a long history of doing this and it being like a, a thing that brings people together, right? So that, you know, not only does the monument bring people together, and inspire awe. Um, and it also brings people together to build it in the first place. It's so counterintuitive to how I've always thought about monuments. Cause I've always thought that it's like, no, once everything's set and there's all these people yeah. there, then it comes in. But thinking about this other way, you, you think about the human condition differently. At least I do. Cause mm-hmm. then, then I started thinking like, of like, Oh, the symbols are actually really effing important. Um, because because yeah. that that is what is it's almost like a sig uh, like a belonging cue or a signaling that then allows uh, civilization to kickstart culture to kickstart. Yeah, yeah, yeah wow. exactly. And of course, there are monuments that you know, like the um, I don't know Jerry Jones's new stadium in Dallas is not the beginning of civilization. That's just like no. hey, we've got extra money and we want to show off. But it's a uh, but it's it's surprising how how often this is. And it, you know, one of the even the Washington Monument, this isn't the same as Potbelly Hill. Obviously, we had a civilization, but the Washington Monument, I mean, it, that the idea for that started before 
the civil war in the US. Like the US basically didn't exist uh, as uh, it wasn't a, a major power. And, and the, then people got together and said, Hey, we're going to build this thing. That's the tallest building in the world at the time. And uh, you know, it took like 50 years to build. It was an outrageous amount of money for a, a nation that didn't have money floating around at the time. And again, like the collective, in this case, it wasn't the collective manpower to build it so much as like the collective, okay, we are a nation, we're coming together to build this, this structure. Um, It was as much kind of, it, it grew along with the nation, not necessarily like, hey, we got this superpower nation and then decided to build the, the biggest building at the time in the world. And this chapter is where you inter- introduce us to the term field theory which yeah. I also is nerding out about. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And it's amazing how people use field across so many different disciplines, mm-hmm. but I love, uh, you know, field theory from, uh, well, well, let's start with the Kurt Lewin version. Um, I mean, so like Kurt Lewin, the, one of the founders of social psychology, um, was a really interesting guy. He moved from, um, from, Poland to Germany and then had to left Germany when the Nazis were coming to power and spent his career in the U S but the point being, he was always motivated by social issues, his whole reason for studying behavioral science. And he made some very fundamental contributions to behavioral science was to try to make the world a better place. Um, and so his, one of his like great contributions to thinking was not just, you know, looking at behavior is not just in the individual, but in the individual and the the surrounding environment, which he called the field. And um, the his he he pointed out that there are ways to change behavior um, were kind of to add forces moving in the direction that you want the behavior to go right so that would be things like okay this is an incentive uh, or this is a a punishment if you don't do the thing um, and then he pointed out that the good way to change behavior was to remove the barriers um, and the, the reason of course adding and subtracting both help here but the reason subtracting barriers to the behavior you want is better is because it actually relieves tension in the system and i think about this with my kids a lot where it's like my three-year-old now she comes home from school and she wants to watch the ipad and once she's seen the ipad if i say oh well you can have a cookie josephine for dinner um if you don't eat the if you don't watch tv and it might work that's an incentive but if it doesn't work she's gonna be mad right she's still fighting that tension of like hey i really want to watch the ipad if I can like just put the ipad out of sight and out of mind which works on a three-year-old it doesn't work on a seven-year-old um then I've relieved the the tension in the system and kind of moving. So it's the better way to change behavior in that case. And Lewin talked about it at, at that individual scale, but also at, you know, larger social issues. So, um, so field theory is basically that the, the environment that's around you um, matters a lot for the, um, for the decisions and the, the behavior that comes about. And that, that was a, a revolutionary idea at the time. Thankfully it's more uh, it's more, it's led to a lot of study in that area since then. Uh, my boss was just uh, in my office talking about, she was just interviewed by this folks at CNN who are maybe interested in doing some work with us. And they were very interesting. The, the last question the person asked was like, where's the line? Like, where's the line in comedy that in terms of crossing it? And as I was talking oh, about, that's go, interesting. Yeah. The line, the line changes. The, the, right. the, the, if there's a plane crash, you're not doing that plane joke right. uh, that yes. day. Right. In a week. <laughs> if it's not in your city, you're doing the plane joke. If right. you're, if it's still in that city, probably not. 
and right. and you know 9/11 of course proved the the biggest example of this but it happens in big and small ways all, all the time and and you know in co- my my wife is finishing up her book on comedy theory her comedy theory um and it's like a she she likens uh, what she basically says uh, comedy always has the element of of pain um and distance and recognition and it's like a mixing board that you're mixing those different things so distance being the farther away you are from from a particular topic probably the um, uh, more risque and taboo, whatever you can go. Yeah. Um, but, but, and then you're measuring the, the, the pain elements because there's too much pain. It's not going to work too little pain and it's going to feel corny. So it's, it's all those elements that sort of mix around. So w- the way you talk about things like a uh, 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 set schema, distance schema, field theory, I, I was really going less to my improvisational brain and more to my comedy construction brain. Oh, that that's interesting. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. And like, that's, um, yeah, a couple of examples that spring to mind related to comedy. Like, you know, I'll be told by students that I'm funny and it's because I'm like, I'm in an engineering classroom. Right. And that that's just, the it's bar right. is so low and I know not to try. The bar is so low. Not to try those jokes. Like when I'm talking to second, you know, you, um, and then the other one is like how you can kind of move that field around yourself. Right. And I, I don't do this, but I notice comedians do it. Right. You'll see, you know, like, why are they telling us this disgusting thing? And then, right after that comes the joke, right? Where they wanted to get the laugh, right? And so they're like changing, shifting the the field that they're dealing with by like putting people in this mood where you're like a little uncomfortable and want you're really looking for something more positive to hear about. And yeah. that's, you know, they're setting up the next joke. So they're like moving, you know, it's possible to change the field yourself too. Yeah. And, 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 sub, and this idea of subtraction is, especially for stand-up comics is the thing that they are, messing with the the most and they do it they and they they can only do it with the audience that's the only way you can tell whether it's working or not and the great gift of that is it's it, it then you realize that it's rapid prototyping right you know, and, and there's other fields where they don't maybe they haven't found the way to rapid prototype but you kind of like you kind of need to if you're in an innovation space and really any innovation space you know we're just lucky that the founders of second city figured out uh, a a you know, our schema, which is this two act of scripted content and then a free improv set. So the late night free improv set is our lab. Uh-huh. That, that's where we can kind of get away with anything because it's free. It's late at night. People have been drinking. Um, and that's, that's <laughs> yeah, where that's we're testing the, out our stuff. Yeah. The, the field has changed, right? It's the like, yeah, like uh, you're a different person after two drinks than you are having not had any. Um, yeah. That's one of the really transformative, like I love watching comedy and, um, you know, thinking about it for, I, I had always watched like the finished product, right? So the yep. HBO or Netflix special. And then as I got into more like, okay, Norm McDonald, he's really funny. And then you watch more of their stuff. And then you, now that with YouTube, you can see them workshopping it. And that's been really amazing to watch. Exactly. Like you said, it's this rapid prototyping and you know, I'm not a comedian, but I do write stuff. And so it gives me a, a much more confidence and, and informs my process. It's like, okay, I've got to write this. I've got to see what the reaction is. I've got to modify it. And that this is what everybody's doing who, who does anything, you know, that's, that's, you know, that resonates with people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think probably the, the example that is so clear with this entire concept is strider bikes. Yeah. I mean, my kid, when my kids were growing up, well, my son doesn't know how to ride a bike. I don't know how to ride a bike. I've never, I, I, really? so was, yeah, I, no, I didn't know, this I don't know how to ride a bike. Yeah. Uh, so my son never learned because my wife didn't teach him and that's, you know, it's on her. Uh, my daughter could ride a unicycle. 
like she uh-huh. was just like like flying all around. But we they you know the when we did try to train, it was always with tra- training wheels. Yeah, and then and now I look at the little kids who are on our block now, and it's like where'd the pedals go? <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. I'm I mean. People think I'm joking when I say like what that this is like an invention that is given more to humanity than most other inventions recently. And but it's it's true. I mean, so the, these are little bikes that are basically the size my daughter could ride it before she was two. Um, mm. And, you know, so it's that scale, uh, tiny. And the reason that the kids can ride it is because the drivetrain has been removed. So the pedals and the, the chain. And so the kids propel it like a Flintstone car. And the surprising thing, I guess the thing that the inventor had to realize was that, you know, the kids can also balance at a very young age. It takes a little while, but after maybe an hour on the bike, Josephine could, could balance and then stride along. And it's like, what an amazing gift to give kids this sense of mobility and, um, and freedom and accomplishment. I mean, to see the look on their face is just amazing. And so it gives you these extra years of bike riding and it also, totally avoids the training wheel stage. Cause once the kid knows how to, um, once the kid is big enough, basically to push the pedals, they already know how to balance. So you kind of put them on a, a larger bike and you know, run alongside of them. And once they can, they can ride the bigger bike without even using training wheels. So it's just made the whole bike riding process better. It's, um, it's, it makes me jealous that we didn't have it when I was a kid. And I, it's interesting. You mentioned not being able to ride. I didn't realize how big a problem this was. And it's actually really central to the Strider bike founder, Ryan McFarland, um, to his, his, his mission. He has a, a nonprofit called all kids bike. And I guess in places mm. like they'll go to like the Bronx and, um, they'll go into a school and literally no kids know how to ride a bike. And this, wow. obviously, if you don't learn when you're a kid, you're not going to pick it up when you're a grown up. No, you're not. You're uh, I, my, yeah. my wife and, and friends and people I work at the second city where I was like, I'll go teach you. I'm like, I'm not getting on. I don't, I like, I have a car. I don't need, you know, and I can run. I have <laughs> exactly. lots of, lots of ways to get places. We have the L we're I'm good. Right. <laughs> um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story. But before that, you took a turn in this book I was not expecting, uh, how subtraction can um, help us with systemic racism. That was that was a, a surprise to me. Yeah, I think just, I mean, there's all this focus on adding diversity. And of course, that's, that's good, right? Um, but then let's keep our, I mean, the basic thing is let's keep our eyes on the prize here, right? Like the, the thing that's the problem is the systemic racism. Yes. Um, and so it's, it becomes really, I'll, you know, use an academic example or an example from my job because I'm familiar with it. I mean, it's really easy to do these, you know, diversity trainings and, you know, everybody cares about this and wants to get better. And so we're trying to add these things, which of course we should do, but it's, we either, in this case, I don't, I don't know. It's so much overlooking the subtractive option, but just it's, it's harder. The subtractive option is like, okay, figure out who the people are who are like, we had somebody sending like racist stuff to our department's listserv, right? It's like, Mm. figure out who that person is and get rid of them. And that will go a long way towards helping with this, you know, systemic racism issue. And also just, you know, I think one of the great contributions of this um, shift in my thinking, at least towards, you know, racism as, as a, the systemic nature of racism, in addition to the individual nature of it, but the systemic nature of it is now you can identify some of these some of these things and remove them. Right. So for us, it's like the, the GRE scores, I mean, not really a great predictor of success in graduate Mm -hmm. school, pretty good predictor of how, 
you know, how economically well off somebody was, you know, certain things. And can we just remove those? And, you know, that, that removes an element of the systemic racism. So if, if the racism is embedded in the system, then it means you can, you need to take stuff out of the system to get rid of the racism. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the, the plus side, the, okay, what's the new stuff we can do? What's the new stuff we can do? And what's the, well, also what's the stuff we can stop doing that's kind of perpetuating this, this racist system. Right. And, and you use the example of Sun City, where yeah. there, where there was a economic subtraction, right? I mean, people that, that were like, no, we're not going there anymore. Yeah. I mean, and this is the great, um, uh, a, a large scale example. Um, and all these large scale examples, even like the San Francisco Embarcadero, it's one of the nice things about those stories is that it's, you know, there it's people like us who are making these changes. It's not like some you know, King is waving a magic right. wand. So the Sun City, um, the this was apartheid South Africa, obviously. And for a long time in South Africa, South Africa had had apartheid for a long time. And there were kind of, um, you know, people denounced it. There were economic sanctions. But until people, until the divestment campaign started, so divestment actually meant, okay, let's stop investing money in these companies that are like propping up this system that we all oppose. Right. So, in, <laughs> you know, over here, you're saying, okay, we're fighting apartheid. We're doing, we're putting in place these laws. We're putting in place these, you know, um, international rules to, to fight against apartheid. And then at the same time, you're still, you know, investing financially in this system that's propping up apartheid. So it's, you know, it also ties back into Lewin's point of, you know, removing the barriers, right? So one of the barriers here is that there is financial clout. And if you can remove that financial clout by divesting, you can really kind of sap the system of its of its power. Um, and that's something that you're seeing uh, Desmond Tutu before he passed away, he kind of got on board with divesting for climate change, um, you know, he saw yeah. the power that it had in in shifting things with apartheid, and then thought about well, we will argued that it's a really good thing to be doing for climate change as well. It's like stop investing in the fossil fuel companies that are just you know that are moving in one direction if you're trying to to work in the opposite direction. Um, and again, this this isn't perfect. I know there's a lot of nuance here with divestment. It's not the only thing to do. It doesn't mean stop doing other things. And there's also an argument about, oh, this is um, one of the ways that divestment works is, is the there's the financial impact, but there's also the kind of stigma that it creates. Um, right. And so that there are important nuances there. It's not like a, a magic bullet. This is going to fix everything. But it's also an example of like a subtraction that was, wasn't implemented for a really long time with apartheid. And now with climate change, it, you know, all these different things we've been doing and divestment is really just starting to come to the fore now. Uh, and so it wasn't implemented for a long time and it's a pretty straightforward subtraction to address some of these like major social issues. So interesting. All right. Um, do you have a yes and story for us? Yeah. So I've got, I was thinking about this and it, me an opportunity to talk about my friend Ben uh, again, the, the golfer, but he's also a, a, like a collaborator on some of the subtracting research. And um, so, it, I, um, I had so again, I'm an engineer by training, an architect, and and I've been like dabbled in behavioral science with collaborators, um, but it's always been pretty like applied behavioral science. Like, okay, here's this thing you found out in nudge theory and I'm going to apply it in the built environment. But the, the idea behind subtraction or that we don't even think about subtraction was a, 
to- that's like a very basic behavioral science idea. And I had this, um, you know, the way I'd been thinking about it, one thing that crystallized my thinking about it was playing Legos with my son. And we had this problem where it was, you know, I added a Lego instinctively and he subtracted a Lego. Um, and I was like, oh, why did I just add and then move on without thinking about subtraction? And I took that to Gabe Adams, who's another co-author on the paper and, and friend. And she, she finally understood what I was talking about, basically. Uh, and, and then she said, okay, well, we need to bring Ben in on this because Ben, I mean, he's like Ben Converse. He's a, he's a university of Chicago product, like the, the behavioral scientist, behavioral scientist. I think yeah. Nick Epley was at his advisor and ILET was, you know, he's friends with all these people. Um, and I'm like, oh man, Ben's going to be looking at this. I'm like all scared. And, um, and Gabe, so, but I'm like, yeah, sure. Gabe, you know, go, you know, take the idea to Ben and, and it would have been really easy for him there to be like, to be like, no, I have my own stuff that I've mm-hmm. been working on. And obviously as a full plate, like everybody else, um, or no, this guy doesn't know anything about behavioral science. Like how is this ground grounded in, you know, the problem solving theory or whatever. There are just so many reasons for him to say no at this point. And not only did he say yes, like that's an interesting idea, but his yes. And was he went and without even telling us just did a informal tabling study outside of his office where he gave people a Lego structure like 60 participants gave them a Lego structure and said, Hey, make this thing better. And out of 60 people, um, only one person subtracted. And so his response wasn't just like, okay, yeah, I'm in, let's explore this a little more. It was like his, his email. I I think the title was biggest bias ever. And he was joking, of course, (laughs) but it's like biggest bias ever. It's like, yeah, I'm in. And by the way, here is the, you know, some preliminary data. We have to do real experiments, but like this, this is really freaking cool. So I thought it was a really neat yes. And because um, it's, it it illustrates how like collaborative thinking can work, but it also like, there is that action there that I thought was really important. And just so, um, so uh, reaffirming of the basic idea and it's such a great way to iterate on the basic idea rather than him say like, Oh, here's this theoretical construct we should be considering. He's like, here's, here's the data. And all of a sudden we're, we're off and running. So that's my yes. And story. I love it. And it's so it, that that's so relatable to like what has happened in this podcast because um, and it's so, it, uh, I have on all these people who are super smart and well accomplished, and I, I do not have a PhD. Um, and, and of course, there's going to be some level of imposter syndrome. But, you know, Nick Epley has done work on this, which is like, actually, most human beings are curious, want to know about other human beings, right. assume, assume things like competence or, or at least, you know, good intent, things like that. And so, like, the richness of my world has increased because I just like, call people, smart people up and say, will you be on this thing? And they say, and they all like almost always say, yes, I've been yeah. turned down maybe three times. <laughs> Their loss. Their yeah. loss. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, the book is called subtract the untapped science of less lighty clots. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. This was the highlight of my week. The Getting the yes. And podcast is produced by the second city and WGN radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us 
at works at secondcity.com. Survive